Good morning. You let me know how I'm doing with the mic. I, uh, thanks very much, Jerry, for that. It's kind of fun. This has been two weeks in a row now where I feel like uh, without any communication, the, uh, the object lesson has basically uh, preached my sermon for me already. So I love that. I love how these things are tying together. Uh, and what I want to do today is uh, start off by opening up in prayer. God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for scripture, um, for this God-breathed tool that we have to figure out what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow you, what it means um, to look like you, uh, and most importantly, to see what you have done through, for us, God, through history, um, through Jesus. And so as we dig into this, work in our hearts and our minds, bring us closer to you, help us to take these words off the page uh, and that these things, God, I pray, would, uh, would make meaningful, practical difference in our lives as we go from here. In your name, amen. How am I doing? Should I switch to a handheld or are we okay? We're good? Okay. Donald Trump. What a way to start a sermon. Donald Trump, since his election campaign a couple of years ago and through to today, uh, he has made use of social media like no other president before him. You'll find him, if you follow him on Twitter, you'll find him tweeting out thoughts and ideas and, and, and retweeting things day and night, all hours. He's known for a very distinctive style of communication. Uh, he uses nicknames and catchphrases and repetition and these sorts of things in order to cement new ideas into the minds of his followers. And because of some of these tricks that he uses, some of these things that he works with, these things do. They begin to catch on. They begin to be repeated by other people. Uh, and and uh, on social media, you would say they begin to trend. They're trending. And you may be able to think of some of the, the words or ideas or nicknames or catchphrases that he has introduced over the last couple of years. But out of all of them, the one that's probably the most well-known is this idea of fake news. The idea of fake news or the fake news media seems to come up in a lot of Donald Trump's tweets. It's, it's, it's tweeted all the time and this phrase has caught on across the entire political spectrum and outside of politics too. Uh, it's not a new problem, this idea of fake news, but the, uh, the, the word or the concept has given us something to grab onto and label this issue with. People use fake news to describe uh, news or articles or information that is deliberately misleading or manipulative or skewed towards one side or the other, and it's a huge issue uh, in our modern times in social media. According to a poll from Pew, uh, many Americans now believe that fake news is the largest threat facing America. It's bigger than racism, it's bigger than terrorism, it's bigger than immigration, it's bigger than climate change. With the rise of social media and the internet, more and more disinformation and misinformation is spreading about all sorts of things. Uh, what used to be contained to, you know, those tabloid magazines you found at drugstore checkouts is now available and accessible and being posted directly alongside other journalists and reporters. And most of us, weekly, maybe daily, maybe hourly, see these things pop up on our Facebook news feed, things that are obviously scams or hoaxes or deliberate uh, misinformation. And in my first draft of my sermon, I actually went into all sorts of statistics and information and examples of fake news, but in the end I realized I don't have to. 
All of us scrolling through our timelines, scrolling through our news feed on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or even in our email accounts, we see this garbage pop up every day. Articles or information that is intentionally designed to mislead, to misinform, to inflame, and to manipulate. Things about politics, about celebrities, about science, about hot-button issues like abortion or LGBT issues or euthanasia or the environment or religion or whatever it is, pick your poison. Whatever you look for, there is information out there that is designed to divide us and to distort the truth. And over the next uh, two Sundays here at Pleasant Valley, we're going to be looking at 2nd and 3rd John. And originally, I had planned to sort of split it up cleanly to look at 2nd John today and then in two weeks when we meet again to look at 3rd John, but as I uh, prepared, I ended up changing it up a little bit. So today what I want to do is set the stage and give a bit of a backdrop or context for these letters, the situation that John is writing into, and then what we're going to do in the next sermon, in two weeks after the stampede, is we're going to take that foundation, this idea that John is setting forth in the first half of 2nd John, and look at the advice that he gives in the second half of 2nd John and 3rd John to kind of build on those ideas to these churches that he's speaking to. So, a little bit of background on the letter. At the time of, of writing here, uh, John is quite an old man. In fact, when he starts the letter, he refers to himself as the elder, and that might be part of the reason. Uh, because we know that John was a disciple of Jesus, and because we can pretty accurately pinpoint about when these books were written based on the context of a few uh, historical events where we kind of know that John was through his life, we know that John must have been in his 90s or at least late 80s when this book was written. And he was likely the last surviving apostle. Peter and Paul and James and the other apostles will have already passed away. Uh, in fact, the traditional understanding is that John is the only one of the apostles to pass away naturally from old age. And so I picture John. I have this image in mind of sort of a stately grandfather. I actually, I don't know if any of you have watched Lord of the Rings, but I have this picture kind of of a Gandalf type of character, this kindly old man. He's full of wisdom, still has a bit of a spark in him, still has a bit of a twinkle in his eye, and he's writing these letters. And he must have been highly treasured uh, by the church community in Ephesus that he was writing to because he lived an incredible life. John was, of course, a fisherman by trade who was recruited by Jesus to be one of the disciples. And he followed Jesus with a burning passion and an energy that sometimes got a little bit overheated, maybe a touch like that sodium there. Uh, in Mark, Jesus refers to John and his brother James as the sons of thunder. And they came by that name honestly. In Luke 9, after Jesus is snubbed by some Samaritans, the two brothers are quick to offer to call down fire to take care of the issue once and for all. As you can imagine, Jesus didn't take them up on the offer. But it gives a picture of the passion that John had. He also refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the disciple that Jesus loved. He refers to himself like that over and over again. And among the 12, it seems he had a special connection with Jesus. His Gospel is very unique because it claims... Uh, intimate knowledge of some of the situations and the conversations that other gospel writers didn't have access to. In fact, the first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often referred to as what's called the synoptic 
Gospels because there's a lot of similarities and overlap and repetition uh, between those books. They cover a lot of the same ground, but John, compared to the other three, he covers a lot of new information, a lot of new ideas, um, and a lot of new theology or new ideas or new framing of theology. And uh, to me, John's books are special because they use very simple language. He writes simply in some ways, but the depth of the theology, the ideas that he's getting across are incredibly deep, are incredibly huge. Uh, one commentator said uh, that the books of John, that the writings of John are a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant may swim. That was the way he put it. This idea that John is accessible by all, but there is huge, huge depth there that can be explored as well. John was as close or closer to Jesus than any other person who ever lived. And so this elder who counseled and worked with these churches in Ephesus, who wrote these letters, uh, will have been highly treasured and respected in that community. And sometimes uh, we like to think that our problems are brand new, that the issues that we're having today are brand new or at least different or worse or bigger or more complicated than they've ever been. Uh, but when we look at this letter, we see that John was already addressing a sort of a fake news problem. There was this issue of distortion that was going on in the church. Back at the end of the first century, he was already dealing with these same sorts of issues that we are having today. Fake news, distortions of truth were beginning to creep in and people were combining Christianity with all sorts of different cults and philosophies, philosophies rather, and religions, and, and they were preaching a false gospel, and they was leading to these sects and these cults and different things. And one of the largest ones, one of the most prominent ones that was around, was an issue uh, called, or, or a cult or a sect called Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was a sect that had developed their own set of scriptures, they had extra books, that the extra gospels that they had that they believed carried weight. And so one of the key differences for them, this sort of is very simply boiled down here, but the key difference was that they believed that the spiritual world was generally good and holy, and the physical realm, anything flesh, anything tangible, anything real, or, or visible, or something that you could touch, or feel, or see, or smell, all of those things by definition were unholy, were broken. And it's a very Eastern idea in some ways, this idea that the physical realm, the flesh is holy, that the most holy thing we can do is to get rid of possession and to get rid of anything that we have that's physical and try and be as spiritual as possible. And by spiritual, I mean mystical or not of the world. And it left them with a problem, these Gnostics. Because how could a holy God ever take on flesh, which is fundamentally unholy? And so they began to twist the story of Jesus. According to the Gnostics, Jesus was just a man, born of Mary and Joseph, not by supernatural means. And then he was a better man than most. He was a good man, but he was still a man. And then when he was baptized, the spirit of Christ, the essence of God, this holy Messiah, descended onto him in the form of a dove. And then he began to perform miracles and to teach, but because that spirit could never be harmed, because that would make that spirit fundamentally unholy uh, to be hurt, it left before the crucifixion, before the torture, and Jesus the man died at that point, and the spirit went back up into heaven. So this was this idea that was being spread around, this distortion of the truth, and John, the author of the letter here, really loathed the Gnostics. 
In fact, in his letter, he refers to them as antichrists. There was uh, an active Gnostic teacher that was working in Ephesus while John was there. His name was Serinthus. And, and one of John's disciples named Polycarp uh, tells a story of, of John and him heading to a bathhouse and realizing that this guy, this Serinthus, was inside. And at that point, John rushes out. He runs out of this bathhouse without even taking a bath. And he says, let us fly lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is within. So he really, really was bothered by this idea of Gnosticism. He viewed it as being directly opposed to the truth of the Jesus that he knew and loved. And he sees this being spread. And he sees the church, who are practicing love and hospitality in the best way that they know how, by opening their doors freely to traveling teachers who want to come in. And he writes this letter to set the record straight. And he gives them advice on how to work with these issues. And so I'm going to read it in its entirety. This is 2 John. It's right close to the end of your Bibles there, if you want to turn with me. Just before Revelation and Jude, there's 1, 2, and 3 John. It says this. The elder, he's introducing himself, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one that we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, and any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister sends their greetings. So the second half of the letter, John begins to specifically address this issue of false teachers. But before he really digs into that, before he starts to give specific advice on what to do with this situation, John takes about half this letter to refocus this lady. And the lady he's talking to here could be a specific woman or it could be a, a general analogy for the church that he's speaking to. It, it's, it's, uh, commentators are divided on that. But either way, it was clearly something that was meant to be circulated and applied to the churches in the area. And because it's here in our New Testament, it's something that's meant to be circulated and applied with us as well. In this letter that he writes to this chosen lady, he chooses to refocus them on what really matters, on the core of what we believe. The first half of the letter is a reminder about what we are building our faith on, what our focus should be, what our foundation should be. So today we're going to look at that foundation, and it doesn't take a very close reading 
of those first six verses to see what the priorities are here. Two words come up over and over and over and over again. Truth and love. Truth and love. Now, some authors in the New Testament, Paul, for example, they typically have a very satisfying way of building an argument. If you read a book like Romans, it just flows. It's, here's point A, Paul would say, and I bet you have some questions about that, so here's the answers to your questions, and that'll flow nicely into point B, and point B will lead directly into point C, and A plus B plus C equals D, and D is how we should live our lives. It kind of works out like this mathematical equation. It's very, very nice to read. It's very nice to preach from. John does not think like this. John didn't have that sort of a mind. He doesn't process in straight lines. Uh, when I took uh, exegetical courses in Bible college, when I took courses that were designed to teach you how to read the Bible or how to sort of dig into things, uh, they, would, they, they taught us to apply some different types of tools that we could use. One of them was sentence diagramming. I don't know if any of you did sentence diagramming in school. Is that a thing that people did? A few hands, not really though. Sentence diagramming is this idea where you break everything down into its sort of core components. You'd establish what subject is this sentence about and what's the predicate, what are, what are they doing, and then you break out all the adjectives and adverbs and describing words and all these things in order to kind of simplify the sentence, to break it down into its core components. So here's a very, very quick example. I know this is not very interesting. I'm not going to spend very much time on this. But, but if you had a sentence that was, the dog across the street has been barking again, well, the dog is the subject, the predicate is has been barking, the dog has been barking, and then all these other pieces there, the modifiers, where the dog is barking and which dog it is and which street it is, all those things kind of get mapped onto this sentence and what it leaves you with is this core idea, right? Dog has been barking. That's as simple as that sentence can get. If you try and sentence diagram out 2 John, you will pull your hair out. It leaves you more confused than when you started. Instead of building a natural argument, everything spins back onto itself. And so I thought better than a chart, it was probably fair to represent John's argument here as a spiral. And it just kind of cycles up like this. It's this cyclone that builds. If you break it down into its basic ideas, the first six verses, maybe their core ideas are this. I love you in truth, John says. In fact, the truth inspires this whole church community to love you. That love exists because of the truth inside of us. Mercy and grace and peace are from God, and they're the fruit of truth and love. And real truth is active. It's not just head knowledge. And active truth is following God's commands. And the greatest commandment is to love one another, and the way that we love each other is by following God's commands. And you already know this. The greatest commandment is to love one another. And so this thing just spirals up and up. And he's focused on these two ideas, truth and love. Truth and love. Truth and love. Truth drives love. And love spurs us towards greater truth. And there's this fusion of these two things that become an engine that connects us to God and connects us to each other. Uh, sometimes when we talk about these ideas, truth and love, we like to characterize it as a, as a teeter-totter, as two sides of a scale, that they exist, and, and, the, and the way that we can win is we find the balance properly. You do not too much truth, maybe not too much love, just the right amount of both in order to equal things out. And John says no to the teeter-totter analogy. He says these aren't opposing things that need to be balanced. 
If you ask John, should I have more of truth or love? What should I focus on if I want to look like Jesus? John would say, yes. You need to focus on both of these things. They're meant to be combined. They're meant to be thrown together. They build each other up and they spur each other on towards the ultimate expression of both truth and love, which is Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. The one who so loved the world that he gave himself up for her. Who loves the church like his bride. I think that John would probably go so far as to say that these things are actually completely linked. They cannot properly exist without each other. To have only truth without love means that you are so wrapped up in being right in the black and white of things that you don't actually have either. It's not truth, it's pride. It's a self-righteousness that you're clinging to. And to have only love with no truth becomes self-indulgent enabling. It actually hurts more than it helps. It becomes poisonous. Love without truth is no love at all. It destroys. When you separate these two things, no matter which side you land on, what grows is selfishness and self-centeredness. The core of the Christian life, according to John, is this interplay, this interdependence, this back and forth relationship between truth and love. So how does this work practically? When I read that passage of John, I understand that these two things are important, but in some ways I, I get lost in the twistiness of what he is saying. So I'm going to try and boil it down into four biblical keys or principles that are maybe a little bit easier to digest or remember, and I think uh, get at the heart of what John was saying here. So the first key is this. Truth should always aim at love. What I mean by that is that whenever we speak the truth, the end goal should be an increase in love. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, where Paul is giving this new pastor Timothy advice, he says this, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Sometimes in teaching, in parenting, in any relationship, in a situation where you have to deliver truth, where something has to be explained or corrected or you have to educate it can begin to feel like the delivery of truth is the goal and however you can get that truth across you better get it across when you walk into a room and you see your kid with a permanent marker in their hand and the dining room wall is their canvas when for the 8,000th time your husband throws his socks beside the laundry hamper instead of into the laundry hamper all you want to do at that point is drive that truth home like a nail and a hammer you can get pretty aggressive about speaking truth. But according to Paul and according to John, the goal of truth, the end aim of truth, always needs to be love. When we speak truth, we should always be seeking to build up the relationship. And the opposite is true as well. Love should always aim at truth. 1 Corinthians 13, that famous chapter in the Bible that deals with love, says this, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love is made glad, is celebrates, rejoices when truth is spoken. Sometimes I think we have a weak definition of love. We can get a weak or a shallow definition of love. And we can begin to believe that truth is the enemy of love. That truth is going to destroy or hurt love. That in order to preserve love, 
we need to back off on truth. We need to hold things back. We need to keep secrets. We need to hide things. But look at Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, 2 verse 4. He writes to the struggling church and he says this, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. This is an example of love aiming at truth. Paul loves the Corinthian church. And because of this love, out of the depths of this love, it compels him to write a hard letter. It wasn't something Paul wanted to do. It caused sorrow and tears for him and the Corinthians. There's pain in the delivery of it. There's pain in the receiving of it. But it had to be said. And so love is what said it. Love is not afraid of the truth. It rejoices with the truth. And love drives us to aim at truth with those around us. The third principle is this. Love shapes how to speak the truth. So love is aimed at truth. Truth is aimed at love. These things are aimed at each other. And it can also be said that they shape each other. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul writes that speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Maybe you heard me talking about that second point, about the idea that love should aim at truth, and you felt like it give, gave you license to finally tell some jerks in your life what you really think. After all, love wants truth to be spoken. So I've got a few words of love for my neighbor, or for my boss, or whoever. Make no mistake, and I think we all know this intuitively, it is very possible and it is very easy sometimes to speak the truth in an unloving way. But there is a way to speak truth in love. And that's what we're after. So what does it look like? It doesn't necessarily mean speaking softly or underplaying the issue or swallowing down what we actually feel needs to be said. Otherwise, I can point to several stories where Jesus would have certainly missed the mark. Sometimes speaking truth in love will be a soft conversation. Sometimes speaking the truth in love will be firm and clear. In general, though, love will shape truth into words that are patient and gentle. Second Timothy reminds us that a Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Maybe the simplest way to focus ourselves is to ask this question. What is the most helpful thing to say in this situation? Not what is the most satisfying thing, not what is the first thing that jumps to mind, but what is the most helpful thing to say? Looking at the people who we are dealing with, who are made in the image of God, who independent of their choices, independent of their lives, are worthy of respect and love because of Christ who died for them. Simply training yourself to process in that way, to ask that question, will help us to begin to speak truth that is shaped by love. And finally this. <coughs> truth shapes how to show love. 1 John 5.2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. It can be difficult to tell sometimes if an act is loving. There are tough situations with no easy answers. 
and we will find ourselves often asking how to best show both these things, truth and love. Some of you are hearing me talk about this, and it's very unsatisfying. You're not hearing anything that ties up your own difficult situation with a bow. You can think of things or people or situations in your lives that you are wrestling with this question, how to work out both of these things, how to respond in the truth and love of Christ. And John reminds us here that it all comes back to God and his commandments. The simple answer to your complicated questions, to your complicated situations is this. As we live with God's spirit inside of us, as we keep our eyes fixed on the ultimate example of truth and love, as we focus on Christ, as we spend time in scripture, as we allow our hearts and our minds and our lives to be changed, as we live in community with others who love Jesus, these things will shape us and mold us to think and live and act like Christ. So, maybe that cleared things up. Maybe your head is still spinning like that tornado slide I showed earlier. I found that as I wrote this sermon, the words truth and love and love and truth came up so many times that they began to almost lose meaning to me. But this is the key. John saw a church being corrupted by false teaching, by fake news, and before he even started to address the specific situation, before he started to talk about doctrines or creeds or systems or programs or structures, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, the man who walked next to the living Christ in ministry, the last living apostle, the elder, said this, nothing is more important than walking in truth and walking in love. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it looks like to live like a Christian. Not which issues we're standing for or against, although as we'll see next time, that is an important thing. We need to figure that out. Not which programs we're running, not how we interpret this word or that word, or this law or that law. The base of the Christian life, when boiled down to its essence, is truth and love. Aiming at each other, shaped by each other. So next week is a stampede service. But when we gather here together again, we're going to look at building off of that foundation. We're going to look at that as a starting point. And then how do we deal with these false teachers in 2 John? How do we deal and work with the good in our lives, the good in our churches that we see in 3 John? And we're going to look a little bit more in depth at how to deal with both sides of that coin. But for now, this is all you have to remember. Truth and love. Amen.